So why don't we pray and we'll dive in. Father, thank you for this beautiful day and we're grateful for the uh, opportunity to gather like this and study the confession and think about how the summary of scripture can be applied to our lives and shape our thinking. Pray today that you'll help us as we look at this chapter. This, each one is important but for different reasons. We thank you that we can reflect on the communion of saints today. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so chapter 26, as I said, uh, this is a, apropos, you know, All Saints Day is coming up and All Hallows Eve is the night before. This is what we normally refer to as Halloween. <laughs> Most folks aren't aware that that's the origin of the term. And uh, anyway, uh, it's kind of something to think about, but we'll get into, get into it here. So uh, the first paragraph reads, all saints that are united to Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces, and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. Pretty rich, you know, I think we could spend a lot of time in working on this and then thinking, you know, about how are we doing, <laughs> you know, when it comes to these matters. Uh, all saints. Now, when we, when we refer to, or we use that term, all saints, we're not, uh, I think, just limiting ourselves to the folks who are with us now. We're also referring to all who've gone before and all who will, will eventually uh, uh, come to the faith. So it's a inclusive, all-inclusive term. But I think uh, we think, generally speaking, in terms of here and now, you know, all the saints. Now, another thing to think about is that the all, you know, when we talk about all saints, we're talking about people all around the world, uh, even in different communions, uh, different, you know, our Baptist friends, our Pentecostal friends, you know, they're believers too. Uh, we obviously have our disagreements, but uh, we can also note they're believers, they're Christians like we are, even though we disagree on important matters. Um, but I think another thing to keep in mind is that it's awfully hard to do some of the stuff with people who aren't born yet. <laughs> and it's kind of difficult to do some of these things for people who aren't with us anymore. And it's hard to do some of the things that are, just, that are described here with people uh, in Zimbabwe on a weekly basis. You know, so, you know, in a, lar a large sense or large or significant respect, we're talking about us as a church, you know, as a particular group of people who are communing with each other on a regular basis, you know, on a weekly basis, but even beyond that, on a daily basis. The first communion, though, and the one that is uh, what makes the other communion possible, 
is our communion with Christ. And it's described here as uh, a union, being united to Jesus Christ, their head. So when we think about that, uh, our union with Christ, I don't know if we often think in those terms. We live in a very individualistic, atomized uh, time where people are more or less uh, wrapped up in themselves, right? You know, what's in it for me? You know, that kind of thing. They think, you know, and evaluate everything through that lens. Whereas when you're united to, say, your spouse, you know, you're thinking in a larger framework, not just about me, but how is this going to affect my wife or how is this going to affect my husband and those sorts of things because, you know, one flesh implies that you have common interests, common future, common wealth, common, you know, everything. <laughs> and that, that union that we have with our, our husband or wife uh, has its, now this is an interesting thing, has its origins in this, this union, when we think about it. So the union of Christ and the church, so think about it this way. When we think about analogs or analogies, uh, what comes first, the spiritual or the material? Spiritual. spiritual. Where did the material come from? Let there be light. So, see, the, the way we think today, and, and you fell right from my trap. <laughs> so I'm not at all surprised. It's, it's not, a, not a big deal. But we, we live in a world where real means matter. Everybody says, this is real. Not just an idea in my head. You know what I'm saying? You know, people say, this is real. But how long is this real? Well, until it ends up in the dumpster and in the, you know, in the, you know, landfill and then it decays. But the Spirit of God is eternal. And what is in God's mind is eternal. In other words, his ideas are not our ideas. You know, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, my ways higher than your ways, that kind of thing. God's thoughts are eternal in character. So his ideas are really real. In fact, his ideas are the origin of this, the material world that we live in. So when we think about marriage, you know, we think, oh, we start with our, our union, husband and wife, and we project it into the church and Christ. Reverse is the case. It starts in God's mind with the union of, you know, himself and his church in Christ and projects it down into our relationships. So it, if, it, if it starts in God's mind and it has an ultimate end in heaven, right? Someday there'll be a great wedding, right? And then they'll live happily ever after, right? That's the story. Go to the book of Revelation, the bride descends, right? So the bride is the church. That means brides are in some sense an analog to the church. And that's also the, tr the case for husbands. In some sense, husbands are an analog. Now, we're not confusing these things. We're not saying that husbands are Christ or wives are the church. They're analogs. 
But the, the, the idea if, that is in God's mind, and at the end, filters back into the present from above to earth, not from the earth to heaven or from the present to the future. You see what I'm getting at? Why is this so significant? Because if we reverse it, then we think it's just a cultural construct, socially constructed, and we can play with it. Well, that was you know, the way people thought in the old days. We're beyond that. And now we're up to date. We can come up with our new, this is what's destroying us. This way of thinking is destroying, it's eating away at the church. Um, that's why you know, we just don't think biblically anymore because we think even the Bible is just a collection of arbitrary, culturally constructed things. Rather than having a, you know, a reality that has its origin in God. Anyway, so Christ is the head of the uh, the church, and, and then our union is uh, there's a means by which. Chris, yeah. Before you leave that topic, yeah. it just strikes me how significant that should be in the development of people's understanding of marriage, their yeah. role as a husband and a wife, father, mother, mm -hmm. so forth, um, historically. Yeah. Because now it's made apparent in a way that it wasn't made apparent. Um, you, you, had, you had God becoming the husband of Israel and so forth, yeah. but now with Christ's work, the instruction of the New Testament, the discipling of the nations, this is an opportunity, right, that we're living in that we should see real growth in how people understand themselves yeah. and understand their marriages that didn't exist historically in a place where the gospel didn't exist at all. Yeah, yeah. And what's particularly troubling is just the fact that many places where the gospel has not been proclaimed, uh, there's still... Uh, kind of a, a common sense understanding of men and women that <laughs> still prevails. Uh, you get into our situation, which is post-Christian, uh, and I don't mean that in the ultimate sense, but just in the sense of the way people think, you know, uh, is uh, people think that this is all just something we can cast aside. This is why we have all this insanity right now, uh, because they don't believe that it has any origin outside of, you know, sort of human culture and we can play with it. Is it also possible that when, as Paul says, when the commandment said, thou shalt not covet, my heart. So a, a culture that's yeah. been instructed that this is what you are as a husband, this is what yeah. you are as a wife, is a culture that, if it's gonna rebel. Yeah, it's, it's rebelling rebel. against the fundamental things. Yeah, it's rebelling against pretty fundamental. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And um, I've been thinking about what has been a, you know, sort of uh, what's occurred in American Christianity and has spread around the world and is even affecting other communions. I mean, I, I, I've got friends who are Roman Catholics who are just really troubled by what's going on in Rome right now, really troubled, uh, because they're actually entertaining this kind of stuff at the level of the cardinals and the bishops. They've complete, they're starting to drink the Kool-Aid. It's just crazy stuff. 
you know, people who thought, well, we'll go to Rome and it'll be solid. And they're like, no. <laughs> you know, I've got friends who think this pope is the Antichrist. And I'm talking about Catholics who think that. Anyway, you know, if you think you're going to escape by going there, you've you're just dressed up different. <laughs> but so I had, maybe I mentioned this years ago. I, so one of the terms that, you know, lots of sort of missional people like to throw around is contextualization. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. Contextualization, the term comes out of, when it applies to the, to the church, comes out of missions. So uh, contextualization is, is when you take the, the scriptures and the truth of the gospel and try to put it into terms that people understand in another place in the world. You know, and the mar marvelous example is Don Richardson's Peace Child. Are you familiar with the Peace Child story? Some of you are. Let me just quickly sort of summarize it. So Don Richardson is, was a Wycliffe Bible translator and he was in New Guinea and uh, he was working with a, a small tribal group translating scriptures into their language and every day, he was, I think he was translating maybe the Gospel of John or maybe you know, Luke or something. And every day he'd get together with the elders and they'd sit by the fire and he'd read what he had translated that day. And as he was telling the story of the Gospel, you know, they were really taken with it and then he got to the betrayal Judas selling Christ for, you know, for, you know, silver and, and they just thought that was the greatest thing. He was really smart, that Judas guy. He had made some money um, by, by, by betraying. And so they, they, they were like really so impressed with Judas, they wanted to worship Judas. And here Don Richardson, I am here as a missionary and I've created a cult for Judas. <laughs> and so he's like, well, how, how, do I, how do I correct this? Uh, well, he did some work to understand the, the culture and its norms and its practices, and he came across something known as the peace child. So one of the things about uh, people in New Guinea is they're almost constantly at war with each other, the tribes are. It's, a, it's actually kind of recreational sport. If you, if you want to see some really interesting cultural anthropology, do, you know, watch some documentaries on New Guinea. And basically the way New Guinea sort of tribal life works is the men do nothing but fight, literally nothing but fight. And the women do everything else, you know, raise the food, raise the babies, <laughs> and the guys are just flitting around all day, you know, sharpening their spears and like making arrows <laughs> and attacking the neighboring tribe. That's it. That's life. But anyway, every once in a while they figure out, you know, we, we should probably call it off. We, we should have some peace. So the way you did it is with the peace child. You would take one of the children from your community and offer it to the other community to raise. And that means that our people are there, we can't attack. One of our own is in that community. And then what happens is, you know, Don Richardson says, aha, Christ is the peace child. And then they get it and the whole village converts. That's contextualization in the good sense. Contextualization in the bad sense is worldliness making the gospel palatable to unregenerate minds. And uh, I remember years ago I had a um, conversation with a friend who was a church planner in Boston, really brilliant man, went to Harvard when he was like 16 years old, grew up in inner city Philadelphia, planted an AME church, was a medical doctor, went to Harvard, and I, I, I was talking with him one day, and I, was, I, was, I asked him, how do you contextualize the gospel to the inner city? And he, he said, 
why would I want to contextualize the gospel to death? Literally, this is a dead, this culture is death. This is a culture of death. To put it, you know, make it understandable to them, palatable to them, is a betrayal. What I need to do is proclaim something they don't know. You know, tell them something they haven't heard. That's, you know, give them new, new words, new categories, <laughs> new ways of thinking. We live in a post-Christian culture, and I mean that in the sense that we are, are our elites, our intellectual elites, are self-consciously, self-consciously anti-Christian. Not accidentally anti-Christian. Self-consciously. If they smell Christianity, they're against it. So when, you, when you're dealing with that, you're not dealing with ignorance. I was in places where, you know, PhDs who were atheists knew the Bible better than 99% of the people in the churches wasn't information. Anyway, so what, what's happened in much of the evangelical world is a capitulation in the name of evangelism. There's a depressing thing to <laughs> think about. Anyway, there's a couple of uh, podcasts are coming up on that theme, by the way. Um, now, getting to the good stuff, uh, have fellowship with him in his graces. Now, sufferings, death, and resurrection, and glory. So we have fellowship with him in all of that. Do we think in those terms? Any, any thoughts? You know, Paul was very, you know, straightforward about the fellowship of his sufferings. Yeah, Victor. There's two ways to look at the sufferings with Christ. There, suffering as being a Christian, having to live life suffering, or if you want to look at it in a solidarity terms, this is why I believe that this doctrine is the most important in the Bible, in my opinion, union with Christ. That we suffered with him. <laughs> And I've talked to you about this before. And so like when Christ died, we died. Well, when Christ rose, we rose. And the scriptures specifically say, and he seated us in heavenly places. And these are the texts that they show forth. So, so to me, it's more than, oh yeah, I can share I can share with you, bro, on that. It's like right. you shared with him. Right. And you died with him. So all saints are united to Christ. This is my, my deep doctrine, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, one of, the te one of the texts that they quote is Philippians 3.10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable to, unto his death. I don't think we think in those terms, but there it is, uh, right there in the Bible. Now, I think, you know, when we sort of, maybe a little bit is, you know, maybe one of the ways that we, t we can think about it is like I empathize or I, I kind of envision myself kind of, kind of participating kind of spiritually or, you know, even emotionally in what occurred. I think I mentioned this before, there's that great uh, spiritual, were you there? You know, were you there when they crucified my Lord? You know, there's a sense in which, you know, you're kind of walking with him, you, you, you witnessing his, his uh, suffering, his 
being beaten, whipped, scourged, crucified, so forth. So I think there's, there's, there's something to that, but I think there's also a sense which Christ uh, suffers with us. There's a sense in which, you know, uh, it's because we suffer, it's because we die, these things, that he enters into those things for us. So anyway, our union with him, and, it, and it's remarkable how, you know, you know, when we think about verb tenses, uh, it's not uncommon to have a past tense with regard to our being raised with Christ, for example, that kind of thing. Like, yeah, how does that work? I don't look at my body, it looks like it's getting older every day. <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. Um, anything else to reflect on there? It's mind stretching, but it should also be you know soul stretching as we think about these things. Glory. I think that's something again. You know, it just seems so far from us, and it is. I mean, we're we're not. The story is over, and yet it's not. If you get my drift. Now the next uh, clause deals with our relationship to each other. Uh, and being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. Now that's an interesting way of putting things, isn't it? I don't necessarily think in those terms. So you have gifts and graces that um, I uh, benefit from through my communion with you. Um, and likewise, hopefully I'm a blessing to you, you know, as we relate to each other. And um, can we think a little bit about, and maybe out loud about that? What's that, what's that look like? What's that mean? Yeah, David. Keep reading, it says we're obliged. Well, I want to spend some time on that, but I want to get to what we're doing first. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to sit there and, and reflect on that for a little bit. But if, you're getting ahead of me, David. You're getting ahead of me. I, so hold, hold, you're getting ahead of me. <laughs> Let's just think about the gifts and graces. What are, what are the gifts and graces? We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Tr trust me. I promise. Well, there you go. So, but the thing is, he's, this is assuming that we know them. So let's think about what they are. Yeah, Brittany. Sure. Right. So that's something I've received. In other words, you know, what do I have that I've not received? So whatever strengths or abilities, you know, both natural and, and spiritual that I possess, they're gifts. You know, so I, I, getting to the obligation part, you know, since I've received, I should give, right? So what are some other things? That's, the, that's kind of the easy one. Yeah, just the gift of helping each yeah. other. I mean, a person that's not saved, the spirit's not in them, may not have that ability. And once that happens, they have a desire more to help. People. Yeah, yeah. Desire is a huge part of it. Now, of course, we've all run across people that you know who are outside the church who can be helpful, you know, interested in us and concerned, um, and sometimes even in a very altruistic way, but. I think one of the things that tends to characterize us when we don't know the gospel, at least it's true for me, 
is that we keep score. You ever run across people that are just always keeping score? You can kind of like look at them and you can see that there's a chart. <laughs> and on that chart, you know, you know, they, they're kind of measuring you and everything they give, they're expecting some return, right? Um, so there's, a, there's this kind of uh, sense that you have that this isn't grace, you know. Now, obviously, grace should, should be followed by a return, but, but you, I hope you get what I'm getting at. It's, it's almost like they're thinking that, I know this has been true for me, so I'm not being, uh, I think, unfair, but when you don't acknowledge that everything you have you've received, then you have a mindset that kind of is afraid that you're going to be taken advantage of, right? You're going to give and not have anything left, and you're going to find yourself empty at the end of the day. Um, and so that, I think that's why, because now if you, you know you're united to God who is love and uh, infinite, then you know you don't run out ever. Now you might not appreciate how people fail to thank you for things. <laughs> that's okay. But it's not like you, you feel like you've been impoverished, if you, if you get my drift, because you gave. Any other thoughts? Yeah. So the, the gifts and graces that we have, um, how many people don't know them? You, you, it's, uh, well, that's like a good thing. Gifts and graces are skills and learning. Like so, um, somebody who's from a charismatic church comes into the Reformed Church, they can learn an awful lot. Well, they do spend a lot of time thinking about the gifts. So let's let's think about those gifts. Can you think of the, some gifts that were, uh, you know, identified in Scripture? That's fruits. That's, a, that's Galatians chapter 5, the, fruits of the, the fruit of the Spirit. And by the way, it's, it's singular, the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits. So fruit of the Spirit, those things. But the gifts are what? Here's some of them. What's that? Here's some. I'll read it. Okay, go for Manifest, it. Manifestation of the Spirit, one who is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, word of knowledge, another faith, gifts of healing, Another effecting of miracles, another prophecy, another distinguishing of spirits. And I kind of wonder if that have both ceased, I guess. Another various kinds of tongues and another interpretation of tongues. Uh, and that's just in 1 Corinthians 12. And, uh, so there were some of them. But uh, also like uh, helps. Yeah, even administration. Yeah. So we... So it's, this is an important distinction to make. So uh, in the 19th century, the Pen Pentecostal movement had two branches. There was the fruit branch <laughs> and the gifts branch. I don't know if you're familiar with those distinctions. <laughs> well, then you would have been in the holiness tradition. <laughs> and the holiness tradition emphasized the fruit, which was the love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, you know, so on and so forth. And those are required of everybody. So it's not, and, and they're all required of everybody. So it's not like, well, you know, my fruits are joy and peace. I'm not into love and self-control. Those aren't my thing. You know? <laughs> no, it's fruit all and for all. So like if you say, my, you know, when you're talking about my gifts, you know, maybe my gift 
is administration or, or being helpful, and other people are, are not as strong in that. But even then, everybody should be helpful. Everybody should be ready to encourage. You get, you get my drift. But there, those things are not expected of everybody in the same degree, same measure. So that's, that's what, now what happened with the, uh, the, the sort of the branching of these two groups, they have the same roots. Um, familiar with the Azusa Street Revival? That's kind of like the branching out of the Pentecostal tradition as we know it today with its emphasis on gifts. And then the sign that you have been baptized in the Spirit is speaking in tongues. That's, that's what they would identify as being the sign that you've been baptized. So the, the idea is that um, within the Pentecostal tradition, more broadly speaking, the two, the two groups believed in a second blessing. So you're, convert, you're converted, and then later on you receive the Spirit. And in the one, the holiness tradition, it was the primary thing is love. You know, you want to be, you have love, you know, just characterize your life and fill your heart and so forth, and you're striving for that. It's sanct the sanctifying grace of God. And then entire sanctification is the idea that, you know, that's entirely the case now. And uh, there were some people who believed that they had achieved that level of perfection. <laughs> they would even use the term. And then you'd get to know them and you'd realize, no, they hadn't. <laughs> but anyway, uh, then the other branch is you know, the fruit where we're not so much interested in focusing on the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to focus on the gifts. And as you get to know those folks, you'd say, yeah, you're right. You're not so much into the fruit. <laughs> I could tell you're not very loving. <laughs> that kind of, anyway, I'm having some fun criticizing. This is a world I know really well because that was a world I spent some time in as a younger person. But anyway, um, so when we think about the gifts, the gifts are not just simply things that you sort of sit and look at and sort of enjoy in private. And they're, they're social in character. They're, in, they're intended to be uh, received to be given. You see, what, you see what I'm getting? So, you know, the whole point is to give them. You've received them, so you should give them. And then Paul talks a little bit about, you know, the, the body, you know, the different parts of the body. Some, some Things are more visible. So this is a very visible gift I possess, right? With that visible gift comes some temptations that are unique to that gift. This is another thing I think, I think is important to think about. I think this is something I think is implicit. Um, and Paul talks about, you know, not, every, not everyone is an eye. Not everyone is a tongue. You know, there are hands, there are feet. And then he talks about those those parts of the body which you don't see, which are actually really, really important and treated with special honor, but don't, are not visible. The problem is, is that sometimes people want, you know, the visible stuff because there is a kind of benefit you have. And Jesus gets into this in the Sermon on the Mount. Praying, fasting, you know, what are you looking for? Are you looking for social recognition through your prayer? or, you know, social recognition because you're fasting? Uh, or are you looking for, a, you know, the approval of God who sees? Um, so what, what, he's, what he's getting at is that um, you shouldn't necessarily long for the visible gifts because there's a temptation to do the things for the wrong reasons. 
and this is just, there's so much evidence of this <laughs> in the church, you know, when, you, when we think about how many, you know, famous preachers go bad, um, and there are things that you, you learn that they were, you know, really into this for the wrong reasons. So that's a particular temptation. I think there are temptations, though, for the gifts that aren't visible. Can you think of maybe some temptations that maybe people who exercise the less sort of visible gifts maybe have to wrestle with? How about discouragement? No one cares. You know, I, I'm doing these things and no one, no one notices or, you know, that kind of thing. I think that's a temptation as much as the temptation of pride. So despair, doubt, these kinds of temptations are as, as you know, uh, in other words, there's no like easy gift. <laughs> it's like, oh, I want that gift right there that doesn't come with any, any downsides or any, you know, things that could be the source of uh, temptation. Anyway, that's just my reflections on it. Don't mean to say that's I've necessarily figured it all out. Yeah, Jiho. Um, this might be a different. It is a different thought, but the thing about gifts and graces, for that to be even a thing, there needs to be like a differential between giftedness. Yeah. So there has to be a hole somewhere that the gift kind of fills. That's right. Um, and one of the things about communion with people is that we all have holes that we need to fill for each other. Right. Um, so that's not explicitly in here, but that seems like a very important sure. thing that yeah. we need to keep in mind like, that we have holes and that that's what we, we, our communion is like based on some of us having gifts of some sorts, but holding others and right. like having all that kind of fit together like a puzzle. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's exactly right. That means that none of us should think of ourselves as sufficient unto ourselves. There's something that I'm missing that I need other people for, right? Cindy? Yeah, you know, just reflecting on, uh, I know a number of Pentecostal gals, mm -hmm. and uh, it's always searching for what's my spiritual gift. Yeah. You know, and it's a real struggling thing for them. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about it this way, as we are all put into the body of Christ for exactly what Jiho is saying, to mm -hmm. put the puzzle together, uh, gives each one of us, but also a role that we play with each other is to, because people don't always know what they're good at, they can't see it, yeah. and when we see it in others, that we would bring it yeah. out, we would say something, we would thank yeah. them, you know, it's, I don't know if you realize it, but you're really good at this. Yeah. You really play an important role. So I think that's part of being in the communion of yeah. the saints is helping each other see. And I don't know, I think in Pentecostal churches, there's so much focus on you've got a gift, it's yeah. your shining star. Yeah. And if you don't feel you have it, you really haven't made it yet. And that's just so unhelpful for yeah. the church itself. So. Yeah, that's a great observation. When we think about it, uh, you know, there's a kind of external call and an internal call. So sometimes, you know, when we think about pastoral ministry, we, we talk about, you know, the external and the internal call. So some, sometimes, you know, at a presbytery, some young man will get up and uh, say, you know, I'd like to come under care because I, I have this sense that I'm, you know, called to the, to the preaching ministry. And then we hear him preach and we say, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, so there's no external call. <laughs> there's no con confirmation, you know, that that's the, the case. Um, 
And I think that's true for lots of things. You know, so we need to hear the, uh, the, the judgment of the church on this particular matter. And you know, you think about like with say somebody like Tabitha, when Tabitha is healed, all of these women are saying, she was so marvelous at this and this and this, you know, and, and we really miss her. And you know, there, there was the external call. You know, she was acknowledged and recognized as having a great role in the church. Now, here's another thing to think about. When you think about, say, the various gifts, some, seem, some of them seem to have a greater, I guess, distribution in the sense of the number of people who possess them. Uh, and, and then there's a sense in which some of the, the you know, sort of the visible gifts are the, are, are, have a fewer, there are fewer people who possess them, but they have a broader distribution, if you get my drift. So if right now, like right now, I'm speaking to maybe 50 people, okay? Um, giving, you know, uh, in a personal way is a lot more, I guess, labor-intensive when you're working at giving to 50 individual people, <laughs> right? So let's say, you know, you have your giving person and you want to, now you could just give a lot of money to a group of people, that's true. But if you wanted to make, like, Let's, let's think about Carly. Carly makes you know, an embroidered handkerchief every time we have a child baptized. You know, it's got the child's name on it. It takes a lot of time for her to do that. It's one thing for one person. Now, if Carly wanted to spend all her life <laughs> making you know, embroidered handkerchiefs for people, you know, it would kind of take a lot of her energy. But to do 50, you know, we're talking about a week's worth of work probably you know, in her spare time, uh, so you see what I'm getting at is there's a sense in which certain gifts, and I think maybe the more personal the gift, or sort of the, the more sort of intensive, like on an interpersonal level, the gift is sort of the, the, the sort of the smaller the range possible. Because at some point then you're just kind of standardizing things and dealing with masses of people and not individuals and stuff like that. So this is, again, a place where I think temptations can occur. So let's say a person uh, is, you know, full of himself as a preacher. And I've come across this a lot. There have been periods in my own life where I've felt this way. Wow, I was at this big event and spoke to 5,000 people. Yeah, and, you know, you know, that's okay. But at the same time, what are their names? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you remember that debate? Who was it with... Uh, Oh, I can't remember. There's, there were two vice presidential candidates, and one of the candidates said he loved everybody, and then the other candidate said, "Do you love my children?" And he said, "Yes, I do." And they said, "What are their names?" <laughs> oh, <laughs> doesn't know. So there's, there's this kind of trade-off. You see what I'm getting at? Um, in one sense, you know, a, a sermon or a book or what have you can have a wide distribution, but I don't really know those people. Whereas a person who's got the gift you know, of giving can know people and understand them, but there's just only so many people you can know. That's, I think, related to that. So you can be discouraged in one way or the other. So like the preacher who says, oh, I've preached to 5,000 people, can be full of himself, but not really have a sense of the limitations. You know? And that a person who maybe you know, has got you know, 12 people that she or he gives to on a regular basis might be discouraged because they're not making a big impact for the Lord in the world. They're just working with a small group and they make it get discouraged. So there's, 
there's, there's trade-offs. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, Jiho. I wanted to continue my thought. Yeah. <clears throat> the holes end up being gifts themselves sometimes. Okay. My grandfather, he, when he was dying, he allowed me to take care of him. Yeah. And that ended up being like one of the biggest gifts that he's ever given me. Yeah. Um, like, so the giant hole, like, uh, I was able to kind of fill. <laughs> yeah. So, um, that's a really great observation. Yeah, and so for all of us, like, we come in here, like, gaping holes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and that itself is gift to each other, and, like, that's how the church works, and that's, um, I think we try to come in here, you know, in our Sunday best, and, like, try not sure. to show our holes, but it's, it's kind and of and to, uh, related to your illustration, there are many uh, older people who have children and they say, I don't want to be a burden, right? And so what they do is they withdraw and they let, they become a burden to people that they pay, <laughs> right? Rather than their own families. So, but, yeah. Great point. Yeah, great point. Just think, in, a, in this church now, um, today, let's say, it's so exciting for me to see um, just the different young people coming on here, and even people from Canada. <laughs> <laughs> even people from Canada. <laughs> I'm not specifying one out, but the differences and the blessings that, you know, a Dave and a Victor can have, or a Jiho and, and a Matt, Mark, all of us. And then you see this in, you know, our various studies and, you know, book studies and then women's prayer groups. And I've seen a lot of um, people reaching out to my wife and my kids that I don't even know. And I think it's great to, um, you know, you can get really theological, which I like to do, but on the gifts and so forth. But really it's just, in a lot of ways, it's just, what are you good at, I guess? Yeah. And that's the gift. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what are you good at? And uh, just try it. Sometimes it's a trial and error kind of thing. So let me give you an example of a trial and error kind of thing in my life when it came to pastoral ministry. We had a, Marla and I remember Manny Chevier. Manny Chevier was this marvelous, godly, fatherly, uh, Cape Verdean pastor in New Bedford, Massachusetts. He was almost like a, he was kind of like a community fixture, right? And everybody admired him. You know, if there was a, literally, if there was like a riot and Manny got up, it, the, the riot would be over. And there were actually stories of him doing stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, he had this line, has anyone told you they love you today? It worked for him. You know, you'd see this grandfatherly, Santa Claus-like, you know, figure that everybody admired, and he just exuded warmth. And, you know, people just, you know, little children would like, their eyes would light up, you know, when he came in, that kind of stuff. I thought, hey, that's pretty cool. I think I'm going to try it. I discovered it didn't work for me. <laughs> and people looked at me kind of quizzically. <laughs> what are you about? <laughs> no! <laughs> I said, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> didn't work for me. You know, you just kind of got to go with what your strengths are. 
You know, maybe you discover what those strengths are through this trial and error process. You know, well, try that. That was a total flop. <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, and then, you know, I, I would look at Manny and I admired him. I kind of wish I had that ability, that, that kind of presence. Maybe as I get older and grayer and my beard grows, it'll, it'll change. But anyway, <laughs> other thoughts? Okay, well, let's go back to this. Now, let's get the duties obliged. That's, that, that's something that I think is worth reflecting on. Obliged the performance of such duties, public and private, as to conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. So this is so, so marvelously rich, isn't it? It's like, they're, it's like they're, they're covering all the possible escape hatches. <laughs> Think you're going to get away from it this way? No. Are you going to get away from it that way? No. So obliged means that it's just not something that you just kind of do because you feel like it. I don't feel like it today. You know? Well, maybe your feelings are stupid. <laughs> <You know? laughs> maybe your feelings don't matter as much as you'd like to think they do. Maybe it's just the right thing to do, right? And maybe it would be appreciated even if you don't feel it. So there's some value in things uh, independent of, the, of your feelings. It's just the right thing to do. Uh, I didn't feel like not hitting you. <laughs> I felt like hitting you. You know, obviously that's a fun illustration and so obvious, but we kind of are like that in, in you know, now I've, have you ever heard the term, it's easier to act your way into a new way of feeling than feeling your way into a new way of acting? Might want to take that to heart. So think about it this way. Have you ever given somebody something and didn't want to and then kind of felt better after you did it? You know, you know it, it's a pretty common thing. So here's a fun story. Um, ben Franklin had an, had an enemy. So, you know, Ben Franklin, obviously, community leader, Philadelphia, you know, an important inventor, famous and everything. And somebody just really had it in for him, another businessman uh, in Philadelphia. So, uh, this was Franklin's strategy for winning his affection. He asked for a favor. He went to, he, he learned that this guy owned a particular book that he really did want to, to uh, read. And of course, this is back when you know, books weren't nearly as easy to acquire and so forth. And so he went to him and said, I, I understand you have this book. Would you mind if I borrow it? I really would appreciate uh, reading it. From that day on, the guy liked him. It was hard to, to kind of be nasty to Ben Franklin when he had given him something. <laughs> So the behavior came first, and that led to a different way of feeling about him. Um, can you think about maybe why that would work that way? I'm not saying this is a fail-safe you know, fail or foolproof method, but I think sometimes we get things um, out of sort of, we, we, we lose sense of uh, the way things work because we kind of bought into a, kind of an emotivist, psychological 
contemporary way of thinking about people. Yeah. We assume things about a lot of people before we even know them. Yeah. They do the same to us. Right. So if you can, if you can portray that, that this is not actually who I am, yeah. then that takes that crust off. Yeah, I'm, I, my guess is that probably this guy thought Franklin was full of himself. And when he demonstrated that he had a need that this guy could fill, it was hard for him not to like him. <laughs> kind of an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, Mark. I think a place where this occurs a lot, which is to reset to reality, yeah. an opportunity that if you're not doing it, do, which is every time you gather as a family to eat, to give thanks. Yeah. It doesn't, if you're out of sorts with each other and everybody's <laughs> sniping and everything, right. right to the moment right. that you come up to that yeah. and you pray and then you reset that there's this gracious God in heaven who's yeah. given us the Lord Jesus Christ, yeah. given us this food and so forth. It's a reset yeah. on reality as to who he is and who we are and all we've been given. Yeah. And sometimes, not a lot, but sometimes it's good to ask a child who's particularly sniping <laughs> to be the one to give the prayer. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah, you got to be careful. Oh, Lord, make my brother give me that. <laughs> right, but that's great. Yeah, Jennifer. Um, I one time just felt very offended, and it wasn't my fault, but I felt compelled to ask for forgiveness for my portion, yeah. which immediately softened his heart. Oh, so we're now, this is him. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying being obedient. Even no, no, this is not good. feel yeah. like you should have to apologize. That's the Canadian. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think too that when you do that, you have to also have the frame of mind that says, what if he doesn't? I still have to do, even though I'm only like, you know, 1% uh, at fault, <laughs> I'm going to own my 1%. And if he never ever owns his 99%, you know, <laughs> you know, that's between him and the Lord, you know, or whatever, right? It's right. like obedience. Right. Yeah. 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 I think one area where this comes into play kind of currently is this whole consumerism mentality about why I go to church. So, mm. you know, I've had conversations with people who are like, you know, the pastor's just not speaking to me. It's just hard for me to go to church. And I think this would, would teach us to orient them to what part is missing as a result of you not being there? Yeah. Who is not being edified? What's, what gift, what part of the body is not present because you're not there? What are you giving? What are you yeah. called to? What are you obliged to give as a, as a participant of this communion of the saints? Um, that reorientation, you know, in my own experience, I've grown up in a, a culture where the church is open, I'm there. And that that acting of, okay, I do that, has created a, a feeling of real loss when I'm not. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's resulted in the, the effect that it should have had in the beginning, but it's the acting of it that's actually made it become the case. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, I think... Um, you know, the consumerist mindset is so strong in our society. It's almost like a second conversion people need to have. 
to get out of that, even after they've come to Christ, because they're still evaluating everything in the way that the larger culture is encouraging us to do, you know. No, here's, here's an interesting thing to think, consider too. You know, we're told that it is better to give than to receive, and that is a quote uh, from the Lord, but it's not in the Gospels. So this is like extra sort of like uh, information about the Lord that we have from another uh, apostle, you know. This is like, again, this is one of those things you, when you're reading Scripture and, you're, and you hear these sort of offhanded remarks, uh, and, it, and it's like everybody knows this except you. <laughs> like it, it, the way he says it, you know, it's like everyone knows that this is one of his sayings. And you're like, I didn't know that. <laughs> Where is that in, you know, the four Gospels, you know? So anyway, but when it comes to better to give than to receive, you know, we can, we can maybe think about it, you know, in the sense that as we give, there is a kind of receiving going on. It's almost like we never get away from receiving. And maybe even we receive more because we're giving. So let's say I'm, um, you know, not hitting it out of the park every Sunday. That, that's, that's not why you're here. You know, you're, 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 you're here for other things too. You know, you're here to give and to receive from others. Other thoughts? Yeah, David. Yeah, it's great to, better to give than receive, but if nobody actually wants it, then you can't give it. So if nobody has needs or wants, or no visible needs or wants, then... Or acknowledged. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like one of those things where everybody knows the person's shortcomings except the person. <laughs> like, I don't have any problems, you should do. <laughs> we all know. <laughs> you know, so a lack of self-awareness can be a real problem, uh, even in this respect, you know, not knowing your needs. That's where James is where you correct a brother, he will love you. Yeah, or should. <laughs> you know, maybe that's the measure of a brother. Maybe now you know he's a brother because he loves you. Might take a while. I've been resenting you for 30 years for what you said after church back in 1989. <laughs> I finally understand that you were right. Thank you. <laughs> you know, so the timing doesn't necessarily always line up the way we wish it did. Yeah. This reminds me of one of the greatest movies ever made, It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. You'd be quiet over there. <laughs> Let me guess, you've seen it a lot. <laughs> a lot of my quotes come from that movie. I'm all right. I'm all right. <laughs> but um, you just wasted on the wrong people. <laughs> but anyway, so then in the movie, there's this epiphany that he has. And it's yeah. all these people. Yeah. Yeah, he was blind to it. He, he didn't know. It can't affect all those people. Yeah, how much he was loved because of how much he had given. And he'd sacrificed. If you remember in the story, he had a dream that was consistently sacrificed. You know, he wanted out of town. You know, he, I'm tired of this small town. I want to see the world. <laughs> and like every time he's about to go, it's like, like, the, like, like, remember when his brother comes back and he's engaged? And, you know, he, he was thinking that his brother was going to take over the business and give him the freedom. And Jimmy Stewart is such a great actor. Uh, from the moment he gets the news that his brother has just been hired by his new father-in-law <laughs> and he won't be able to do it, 
and you can see his face is cr he's crushed. And then he comes to himself and he says, my brother's married. He's got great things going on in his life. And he corrects himself and, and he smiles and he goes over and congratulates them. And, but again, another sacrifice that he's made. Um, and then in the end, you know, that's uh, this marvelous, like you said, epiphany that this was a wonderful life. Powerful film. By the way, uh, that was the first film Jimmy Stewart made after he got back uh, from World War II. And he was dealing with post-traumatic stress syndrome. He had flown, I think, 25 missions and had seen many of his friends killed. And he was just kind of a shell at that point. So you gotta wonder if maybe that was great for him to be a part of that film at that point in his life. Anyway, well, we got to the end of, we've only gotten through one, so we'll be back to this one. Now next week, Joel Salatin will be with us. So we'll, you know, we'll let him talk, talk a little bit. <laughs> and we'll get back to this the following week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that uh, we can gather this way, like uh, has been noted already, and pray, Lord, that you'll help us in this uh, matter. Um, we live in a world where everything is reduced to the individual and we think in terms of just sort of the inward and we lose sight of our need for the gifts that you have distributed in the church. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to grow in our appreciation for them. In Christ's name, amen.